It's good morning worship, amen? amen? Am I the only one not coordinated enough to sing and clap with that last song? That is a challenging song for me. I, I love it, but it's challenging, so praise the Lord. All right, so this morning we have a primary question that we're attempting to answer through the Word. It's the actual title of your message for this morning. The question is, will Christians face God's judgment? Will Christians face God's judgment? So I want to share a connection between that particular question and God's story in my life. And many of you have heard parts of my story. Hopefully the connection will be clear in just a moment. So a little over 18 years ago, God began a process in my life of helping me understand that I am no longer under the law, I'm under grace. And that was one of the most welcome truths any believer could ever understand. And if you've yet to understand that peace, then Lord willing, this morning, God's going to meet you in a special way with that. So I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home with two parents who loved the Lord and wanted each of their kids to know Jesus personally. As a result of their faith, we were in church every single week. And from the grades 5th through 12th, I was in private Christian school, complete with Bible classes and sword drills and chapel services, prayer times, and godly teachers. I heard the gospel often, and I also heard it early. But I'll tell you, the focus of that church and the focus of that school when it came to the gospel was always on where you spend eternity, heaven or hell, as well as the judgment that awaits those who reject Christ. That was the emphasis. It was destination, and it was judgment. Now, they also shared that Jesus loves us, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he rose again the third day. They shared all of those pieces, but when the gospel was shared, it emphasized destination and judgment far more than relationship and purpose for which we were created. With fear as a primary motivating factor, I prayed what's been referred to as a sinner's prayer dozens and dozens of times. I prayed the prayer because all I knew is eternity is coming and judgment is waiting. I looked out and I, I kept hearing about heaven and hell and about the gospel and about the judgment of God. And I prayed prayers repeatedly during that time. I understood the basics of what the gospel was about. I understood the basics and the fact that Jesus was real, that he died on the cross, that he rose again on the third day. I understood those pieces. But from middle school, high school, and for the first three years of college, here's what I can tell you. I never felt saved. I just felt scared. Scared. Did I pray the prayer right? Am I doing things right? Is God pleased with me? Just this constant fear in the back of my mind. I never doubted whether or not Jesus could save. I doubted if he had saved me. It was a personal thing. All of that changed in the summer of 1994 in a hotel room in Clemson, South Carolina. In a state of desperation and brokenness, I got before God and I just said, God, I have messed up my life. And if you can do anything with the pieces... It's yours. It was not about eternity at that moment. It was not about judgment at that moment. 
It was about the fact I knew I was broken and I desperately needed God in my life. And all I can tell you is on that day, he saved my life. And things changed after that. He gave me a new heart. He gave me a new mind. He gave me new desires and new discipline and new passion. And he, he changed the way I thought and he changed the way I lived. And quite honestly, he changed who I'd live for. Everything changed on that day. But I can tell you something that did not change immediately. The mentality of works-based righteousness. That has been an 18-year process of God continuing to unfold piece by piece. I don't ever want to do anything to say my home church did not do some things unbelievably well. They taught scriptural authority. They taught the necessity of salvation. They taught about righteousness and about holiness. So I praise God for that. Please don't hear that I'm, I'm trying to dump on that. Here's what I definitely knew that they taught. They taught without a doubt you could not earn God's favor. But listen, the simultaneous message was you're going to have to work like crazy to keep God's favor. It was all about what you do. It was never about the relationship. It was all about what you do. There was phrases we heard often, phrases like Jesus died for you. The least you can do is live for him. Instantly, it loads people down with a burden. We were constantly reminded that good Christians do X, Y, and Z. They don't do A, B, and C. We were regularly reminded that good Christians are going to be those who are going to show up at church every week and they're going to read their Bible and they're going to pray and they're going to give their money, they're going to serve, they're going to share their faith. We were regularly reminded of those are the things. Christians do these things. Christians do not cuss, they do not chew, and they don't run with girls who do. Amen. You, you get it. Now let's be honest, some of that's still good theology right there. Let's just, let's just stick with that. But here's the thing. It was focused so much on the do's and the don'ts that I lived life in this constant state of I'm letting God down. The question or the statement was always, you could do more. You, could, you can give more. You can read more. You can serve more. And it didn't matter how much I did. There was always this feeling of it could have been more. This feeling of you're letting God down. This feeling of God is just tolerating you because all of those other Christians seem to be getting it and you're just kind of bringing it together as best you can. There was this ongoing weight that I was never living up to what God would have for me. All of that changed, though. At one point, Jesus stopped me in my tracks with Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The passage just simply said this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. When I read that, I didn't necessarily understand what it meant. I just knew I wanted that. I needed to understand that. I needed to experience that. 
And it was a process that God began me on. It's a a process of understanding that my acceptance is based upon Christ's righteousness. Whenever the Father sees me, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In time, God's love for me became clearer and clearer. And another thing happened, and that is my desire to obey him became stronger and stronger. For 18 years, God has graciously helped me to see that there is a walk in the Spirit that allows you to walk in obedience with His Word. It is under the direction and under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. It is for the glory of God, and listen to this, it is a walk that comes without condemnation. Now, for those of you who have been on a similar journey, you will know that once you have experienced the joy of a love relationship with the God of this universe... You can never go back to dead, cold religion. In fact, your, your heart's cry is a Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. But, but here's a new hurdle that grace-based believers are going to have to face. How do we reconcile John 5, 24, where Jesus said that anyone who believes in him shall not come into judgment? How do we reconcile that with 2 Corinthians 5, 10, when Paul says believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? It's not uncommon for people who have first tasted the depths of grace to find themselves running towards license in sin and overcoming what might be considered liberty in Christ. In fact, oftentimes they will say, I'm no longer under the law. I'm no longer under the law. I'm free. I'm free. I I get that. I believe 100%. That's what Scripture says. But here's the issue within that. If we're not careful, we run right past our liberty in Christ, and we step into a license to sin. That is not an understanding of the law. That is not an understanding of grace that does not lead to the fullness of what we find in a faithful walk with Christ. So will Christians face God's judgment? If we do, what are we being judged for? And how do we understand that future judgment in light of the fact we are no longer under the law, we are under grace? All of those questions are answered through the word. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, Bible app, follow on the screen behind me, James chapter number 2. We will be in verses 10 through 13. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Let's read the text and just pray and move forward from there. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit murder, also said, Do not commit adultery. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that, God, you would walk us through your word in such a clear way God, we all see exactly the next step in each of our lives. May your spirit do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So this last week, we talked about the sins of division that were found in the preceding verses. 
Sins like partiality, favoritism, prejudice, discrimination, all of that. And James mentioned God's royal law found in verse number 8. The royal law is you shall love your neighbors as yourself. If we follow that piece, if we love our neighbor as ourself, all of those other sins of division would cease to exist. They would be done away with. But the other side of that is what happens when we do not follow that royal law. He tells us in verse number 9, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, I stopped at that particular point this last week because the following verses need further explanation. James now enters into this conversation about God's law and God's judgment and God's mercy as well as the nature of sin. According to Scripture, all sin brings death. All sin separates us from God. All sin makes us a transgressor of God's law. According to Scripture, those who have received God's mercy are called to extend God's mercy to others. But also listen to this. According to Scripture, the final judgment is awaiting both believers and unbelievers. In fact, this belief in a final judgment is so strong in James' writing that the further we go in this letter, the more pronounced it becomes. So, for example, it shows up as a theme in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 5, 5, verse 9, 5, verse 12. The further we go, the more he keeps reminding people, there's a judgment coming, there's a judgment coming, there's a judgment coming. So before we jump into the specifics of this text... I thought it'd be a good time for us to hit a pause button and to be able to understand what does the Bible say about this future judgment? What does it describe for both believers and unbelievers? We need to get kind of a biblical framework, and if we get that put in right, those verses will now come alive in a completely new way. So here's your key idea for this morning. Judgment is inevitable. How we're judged depends on our response to Jesus. Judgment is inevitable. How we're judged depends on our response to Jesus. The Bible refers to two separate judgments that are coming in the future. There's the great white throne judgment, and there's also the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment that's mentioned over in Revelation chapter 20 is where unbelievers, that's key, Unbelievers will be judged and eternally condemned for rebellion against God and rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want you to know, this judgment does not determine a person's salvation. Those who are standing before the great white throne judgment are those who have already rejected Jesus in this life and they are doomed to eternity separated from God's presence in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Unbelievers, listen to this, will be judged out of those things which were written in the books, here it is, according to their works. This is going to be key all the way through, according to their works. Since they have rejected Jesus' work on the cross, they will be judged based on their works in this life. Every thought, every word, every action, Every inaction will be judged against God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. And when that's the case, every person comes up wanting. According to God's holy standard, 
We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There will be no reward at the great white throne judgment, only condemnation and punishment. Then there's the judgment seat of Christ, also referred to as the Bema seat, mentioned over in Romans chapter 14. This is where believers will be judged and potentially rewarded based on how faithfully they follow Jesus as Lord. Once again, this judgment does not determine salvation. Salvation is determined in this life based on the effectual call of God that leads a person to repent of sin by placing faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Believers will not be judged for our sin. That has been dealt with on the cross according to what Jesus said in John 5, 24 and also what Paul says, Romans 8, 1, that that is behind us. There, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We will be judged and or rewarded based upon our faithfulness of our works as believers. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the place where when 1 Corinthians 3 teaches about our works, it says that our works will come under the fire of God. And some of that work will be revealed as gold, silver, and precious stones. Those things that are spirit-led and spirit-empowered and those things that reflect the glory of God. And then he also says our works might be wood, hay, and stubble that gets consumed in that moment. Those are the things that are works that are done self-serving and shallow and sinful. And those are the things that have no lasting or eternal value. Believers do not need to fear condemnation at this point. They don't fear those things because that has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. But listen... Without the fear of condemnation, our service can be completely motivated by love for God and a desire for his glory. So the Bible, in a beautiful way, it gives this incredible invitation. Very last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. In there, there is mention of rewards for believers and an invitation of salvation for unbelievers. I want you to listen to both. Jesus says to believers in verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. And here it is. And my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. There's that word again. According to his work. Then in verse 17, it tells unbelievers, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. How beautiful is that? You get all the way to this last chapter, and there is a word of encouragement for those who are believers, and there's also a word of invitation for those who are unbelievers. Two reminders, two judgments, two dramatically different futures. Now, there is a chart that is in your notes. Now that you have the, the major pieces, look at that chart. Based on what we find between the two, who is being judged? At the great white throne, unbelievers. At the judgment seat of Christ, it's believers. What is the role of works? At the great white throne, it is evidence for condemnation and suffering. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it is the basis for rewards or denial of rewards. What is the issue? This is beautiful. It's faith in Jesus as Savior or it's faithfulness to Jesus as Lord. What is the result? One brings eternal condemnation. The other, rewards bestowed are withheld.
Now, with that as our backdrop, I want us to walk through the specifics of this text. Now, remember verses 1 through 13, it's all coming together. It's all addressing the sins of partiality. So I have broken it down into two weeks, but this entire section goes together. So I'm going to go back, look if you would, back in verse number 9 for just a moment. Let's recapture what's happening. It says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, in that particular text, there's two different words that are being used of those who are showing partiality. There's the word sin and also mentions the word transgressors. Sin means missing the mark or falling short of God's standard. Transgressors refers to willfully going beyond God's prescribed limits. So look at how much that covers. It is one is talking about you fell short. The other said you went beyond the limits. Both sides, it's saying it's sin. Now, verse number 10, it says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. Now, th th this is an interesting way that James sets it up. He creates a hypothetical situation. He said, let's just say someone could keep the entire law. 613 commands in the Old Testament. Let's just say they kept it all. Now, if you're wondering if we could, go back to the Ten Commandments. How well did we do on the Ten? Not real well. You're like, well, if it was just one commandment, we would do better. No, we wouldn't. We did that in the Garden of Eden. We had one command, don't eat from that tree. It didn't matter if it's one command, 10 commands, 613 commands. Humanity has rebellion that is baked into that sin nature. So here's the thing. He says, let's say somebody kept the whole law, but then they stumbled with one point. Even the word stumble, it's intentional. It's also translated as tripped. It describes a person who's not willfully acting in disobedience. They just sin by neglect or they sin by inattentiveness to God's law. This person breaks the law. And he says, if you've broken even part of it unintentionally, you just tripped. You just, you know, sinned. He says, you've now become guilty of all. You're like, I don't understand that. Think of it like this. Let's say you stole one small piece of candy. It's just one. It's an isolated moment. You've never taken anything before. You've not taken anything since. It was just one small piece of candy. The consequences didn't seem that big in the moment. Or let's say you stole 500 pieces of candy over 10 weeks, and you just keep stealing a little bit each time. Or let's say you stole $5 million in a Ponzi scheme. Okay, you're saying... Ponzi schemes much worse, and I understand the, the ramifications and consequences more than likely would be. But here's the thing. The moment someone takes something that is not theirs, they just earn the title thief. It doesn't matter if you stole once. It doesn't matter if you stole multiple times. It doesn't matter if you stole in a small way, in a major way. The moment it happens, there's a new designation. That person's a thief. In the same way, it's saying it doesn't matter if you've sinned one time, if you sinned repeated times in a small way that you tripped over or in major ways that everybody would recognize. The moment we sin, it is rebellion against God's law. And he says, you've now earned the title sinner or transgressor of the law. That's what he's saying here. So now James talks about the fact in verse number 11 that there is these two extreme examples. He quotes from the Ten Commandments. 
And he basically says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, many of you have heard that the Ten Commandments can be broken down. First ten, dealing with our responsibilities before God. Second six, deal with our responsibilities with other people. All right? Here's the thing. He pulls two from the second grouping, that is, do not murder, do not commit adultery, both sins against somebody else. And he's basically saying, if somebody has murdered someone, if somebody has committed adultery, he says that is the exact opposite of the royal law that was just mentioned in verse number eight of love your neighbor as yourself. That is the exact opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. You're hurting someone, you're killing someone. So he goes on from there and he basically says, if you have done these things, if you've done any of these, he says, you become a transgressor of the law. Now here's interesting, if you pay attention to his words, look back up in verse number nine. If you remember in verse number nine, that's where we began today. He said, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Same phrase. James is saying showing partiality is a sin and it will make you a transgressor of God's law. Committing adultery and murdering someone is a sin. It will make you a transgressor of God's law. In the end, sin committed at any level makes us transgressors of God's law. So what are we supposed to do with that? It's one thing to know that's the case. What do we do with that? Look at what he says now in verse number 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, since partiality or favoritism, as we've described it, is based on false judgments that turns believers into unjust judges based on chapter or verse number five, we should also remember that there is another judgment day coming, but that one's got a just judge. He says, you need to speak and you need to act as someone who is going to face a judgment. But this is going to be judgment based on the law of liberty. And that is so key here. It's liberty. When we obey God's law, it frees us. It it enables us to walk in the fullness of what God has for us. Here it is. Liberty does not mean license. Liberty does not mean license. License is the mentality, I can do whatever I want. That is the worst type of bondage a person could be in because they think they are in it of their own volition. When you start taking that perspective with sin, here's what you'll find. Sin will tangle you up. Sin will take you down. Sin never stays where you leave it. It always has another branch going after another part of your life. Liberty is not license. Liberty means a person is free to do what is right. Now notice the clarity that he gives now in verse number 12. He talks about what do you do? First, our words will be judged. He says, so speak as those who will be judged. There's a judgment coming. He's speak. Let let your words be that way. What we say, now why would he even bring up what we say? Is it really that important? Do you remember what just happened in verse number three? When that rich person and the, the poor dirty man came into the assembly, 
the people spoke and they said to the rich one, you sit over here in this nice place of honor. And then they spoke to the person who was poor and dirty and said, you can stand over there or you can sit at my footstool. It's their words. And basically here's what he's, he's helping us see. What we say and how we say it and even the motives by which it is said is one day going to be judged by God. Even careless words will be judged based on Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Is it any wonder that James talks so much about bridling the tongue, chapter 1, verse 26? The stricter judgment that comes to those who are teachers, chapter 3, verse 1. And the sins of the tongue, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Our words matter. Here's the second part. Our deeds will be judged. He now says, so act like those who will be judged. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, it reminds us that each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will be judged on how faithfully we are serving Christ, 1 Corinthians 9 on how well we're obeying the Great Commission, Matthew 28, on our victory over sin, Romans 6, on the control of our tongue, James chapter 3. All of us will give an account for our actions. The question now becomes, did your actions reflect your new nature in Christ? And here's the last part. Our attitudes will be judged. In verse 13, he contrasts two very distinct attitudes, those who show mercy and those who are merciless. The question is, do we show mercy to others? When someone has offended you, when somebody's offended me, do we want to call out every part of their sin while at the same time saying, God, thank you for having mercy in my life? Do we want them to, to feel everything? Do, do we want them to be punished in, in our way? Or do we sit there and say, God, thank you for the mercy that you've extended to me. He's saying there's an attitude that comes with this. When a person has been redeemed, when they understand the gospel, they will show mercy because they look out and they're like, if you only knew part of the sin against my God, if you only knew some of the most depraved thoughts that have come through my mind, if you've only known some of the things that I've done, you wouldn't want to hang out with me at all. Thank you, Jesus, for the fact you have shown mercy to me. And the person who recognizes that, they say, God, may you be merciful to others. It changes us. So he's saying, one day... Our words, our deeds, our attitudes will all come back before our Creator. Mercy and justice both come from God. They are not competitors. When a person repents by faith, they place faith in Jesus Christ, they are met with God's mercy. When a person continues in rebellion against God, they encounter God's justice. Just as recipients of mercy have been blessed, we are to extend that mercy to others. James finishes this section with one of the greatest statements you're going to find in the Bible. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. When did that happen? On the cross. On the cross. Why would he say mercy triumphed over judgment? 
Because every single one of us, apart from God's intervening grace in our life, would split hell wide open. None of us deserved salvation. None of us deserved mercy. None of us deserved grace. The very fact Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that is the moment, if there's ever a moment that you could ever imagine, that is the moment where mercy triumphed over judgment. Praise God for what it's, he's done for us. Now we go to this very end piece. Remember, it all started out of this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, Paul, I don't know if I know how to love my neighbor as myself. Like, I, I don't even like a lot of people, I, much less love people. Here's the thing. God is not encouraging us to stir up some type of false emotion. This is a decision of the will. Here it is. Christian love means we treat people the way God treated us. And when we fail to do that, the Spirit of God will convict. The Spirit of God will prompt. That's not how I've treated you. That's not what I've extended to you. When I look at that as, as what it looks like for how Jesus treated me, it now gives me a greater parameter to understand this is what it looks like to love somebody. So all I can say is every bit of what I just described, as far as the judgment seat of Christ, about being judged based on our words, our deeds, and our attitudes, every bit of that is still completely held together in the fact that we have been forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And because of the fact we are not condemned, here's the thing, we are free to love. We're free to love God completely, and we're free to love other people the same way that God has loved us. Our motivations can be more clear. We're, we're, not, we're not going through life, and every time we mess up, or every time we sin, our first thought is, did I just lose my footing? Is God mad with me? You immediately go back and you say, thank you for the fact that you've already forgiven me of this sin. Thank you for the fact that my acceptance is not based on my performance. My acceptance is based completely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you for the fact that I can submit before you. I can submit and I can share this sin before you. And in the moment, I know that my standing has not been shaken, but rather it is secure. Praise God for that. You know what happens when people understand that? It shortens the period of time between the enemy beating you up over your sin before you step back out in the fullness of what it means to walk in the Spirit. You say, I agree, that was a sin. But I praise God for the grace and mercy I've, I've received in Christ. So I want to finish with a story. When I, I read this story, it was one, it helped me. It, it helped me understand even more the power that's happening between this idea of the gospel and, and coming and remembering what's happening down the road. Here's the story. Years ago, a young pastor was invited to a prominent home in order to watch a musical. There was a lady who performed at this particular home, and she wowed the audience with her gifting in music as well as in singing. After it was finished, this pastor walked up to the lady, and he said, and I quote, Young lady... 
When you were singing, I sat there and thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if you would dedicate your life and your talents to the Lord. But you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot. But I'm glad to tell you, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin and if you will come to him. She responded with, you are very insulting, sir, and walked away. His response is, lady, I did not mean any offense, but I pray the Spirit of God will convict you. Later that night, she couldn't sleep. At 2 a.m., the conviction overwhelmed her. She got up, knelt by her bed, and placed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Afterwards, she wrote the words to a hymn that we have sung many times before. Her name is Charlotte Elliott. These were the words she wrote. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You might say, Paul, this has been a hard message talking about judgment. Listen, this is the most gracious message you will ever hear on this side of eternity. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, now is the time to respond. And the gracious invitation is, come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let anyone who thirsts, come. That's grace. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. If you recognize that there has not been a time that you have repented of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. If you recognize that there is this tension between who you are and what the message of Christ is, but there is a desire inside of you to know that you are right with God, all I could say is the Spirit and the bride say, come. There is a Savior who is waiting. Somebody else might say, Paul, I'm worried about the other part. I'm a believer. I recognize that, again, this could be the most gracious message you will ever hear because one day, one day, one day, Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm coming quickly and my reward is in my hands 
and he will give out as according to our works. In other words, one day the eastern sky is going to split, and it's going to be the long leg of our Galilean Savior as he hurdles the walls to come down and to get his bride. Now is the time to say, God, I want to be serious about my walk with you. I want to walk faithfully in this life. I want to be about the Great Commission. I want to walk as a man of God in my family. I want to share my faith with others. I don't want to dial it in from home anymore. Now is the time. If we're talking about walking in faith with Jesus, now is the time for that. Because one day, regardless of who we are, we will stand before God in judgment. Where are you at this morning? Don't let this morning be another day that you just say, I'll wait till later. You don't know if tonight you're going to meet your Savior. You don't know if next week is when he's coming. Now's the time. I'm going to ask you if you would to bow with me for just a moment. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. There's going to be pastors who are going to be making their way, some of our pastors' wives, to the front. Our worship team is going to be making their way, but that's, that's the noise you hear around you. I want you to block that out for right now, and I want you to ask this one question of God. Where do I stand before you right now? Where do I stand? And if God is bringing conviction, if he's letting you see that there is not that relationship there, but there is a desire in your heart to be made right with God, I'm going to lead just in a, a time of prayer and confession right here. I say this all the time. A prayer does not save you. I cannot save you. This church cannot save you. Jesus alone has done what is necessary for our salvation. In prayer, we're simply responding back to God. If you understand the gospel that humanity was created for relationship with God, that our sins separated us from that relationship, that's all have sinned, not just some all. If you recognize that there is nothing that you can do to be made right with God yourself, then you understand the need and you understand your purpose for being here. That, that's the first part of the gospel. But since we couldn't do anything to make ourselves right, Jesus did it all for us. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If you desire this morning to know that you were saved, if you desire for God to transform your life, and you're not, you're not sure about where you stand, but you want that. Then I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. This would be between you and God. It would simply be, God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. God, I'm sorry for my rebellion. 
I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And he rose again on the third day that I might have life. As best I know how right now, I turn from my sin by placing faith in Jesus. Will you forgive me? Will you give me eternal life? With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I would love to be able to rejoice with you. There's many people in this room right now. I don't know where everyone's at personally. But if you just prayed with me wherever you are, would you simply just lift your hand for just a moment if you prayed to receive Christ? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. You may put them down. Thank you. There's a time that we're about to have as far as an invitation time. And during this time, there are people, pastors, pastors' wives, counselors, who are here that would love to pray with you. If you've just placed faith in Christ, let let us know. Let us help you take the next step in that. You can come and talk to one of them and just say, I place faith in Jesus. What's next? It might be that you need somebody to pray with you this morning. It might be that you've been looking for a church home. It might be that a peace that God's been burdening your heart is you've not been baptized, but you do know that you have a relationship with God. Whatever it is that God's working into your heart, I'm going to ask you if you would respond to him. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to experience right relationship with you. Lord, may you be glorified in this place. May the chains of religion continue to drop. And God, may the joy that comes from knowing you get deeper and stronger day by day. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand where you are? We're going to sing. The altar is open. Just respond as the Spirit prompts you.